didn't do very well. I asked him to manage expectations. It was not my idea of it. Will you pray with me as we start? Father God, your story, your words. Make me a good teller of your story. In your son's name, you can bring these requests. Amen. In my academic discipline of communication, we are trained to start by defining our terms. So I feel like I need to offer a way of the way I understand grace before I can tell you how I have experienced it. My rather unconventional choice of a definition comes from Frederick Buechner from his book, Wishful Thinking. The grace of God means something like this. Here is your life. You might never have been, but you are because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. Here is the world. Beautiful and wonderful things will happen. Do not be afraid. I am with you. Nothing can separate us. For it is for you that I created the universe. I love you. There's only one catch. Like any other gift, the gift of grace can only be yours if you reach out and take it. Maybe being able to reach out and take it is a gift, too. There's a few things I like about Beekner's framing of grace. Grace is a gift, and gifts are given to us not because we have earned them or because we deserve them. Gifts come in all different forms and packages and from all different givers. But grace also doesn't mean that I am passive. God extends his grace to us. I receive it, or I get to receive it. Beautiful and terrible things happen to all of us sometimes in the very same week, like getting three teeth extracted and your second COVID shot in the same 24 hours. My week. True. Um, God is at work in the remarkably ordinary moments of our lives. Often, it seems that the stories of faith, though, focus on extraordinary events. They have a clearly defined arc. But if I am honest, I have a hard time connecting with those stories because that's not the most often the way I see God. Instead, I feel like I have a lot of very ordinary moments. I study interpersonal relationships, and in my discipline, there are two competing schools of thought. You can study the Hallmark card-worthy moments, the discrete turning points. Your first date, the day you got engaged, the birth of your first child, the first I love you, your first big fight. Or, as scholar Steve Duck says, you can study all the days in between, where nothing seismic happened, but they literally made up or constituted your relationship. This is the approach I have favored in my scholarship, and I realized over the last few weeks that this is also my story of grace. It isn't the highlight reel footage where I most see God. Instead, it's in very regular moments. They are exceedingly ordinary. Many of you could probably tell very similar stories with different names or places. I often tell my students that the study of communication is exceptionally pedestrian. It's not a weakness of what we study, it's actually the strength, because that's where we live. I use my communication degree every day of my life. Likewise, the commonness of God's grace doesn't cheapen it or reduce its worth. It tells me that God uses ordinary moments in extraordinary ways. 
As Dallas Willard put it, ordinary people in common surroundings can live from the abundance of God's kingdom, letting the spirit and the actions of Jesus be the natural outflow from their lives. Last week, I was trying to think of a good organizing structure for the stories of grace that I want to tell when I realized that the answer was hanging on this piece of paper, is it up there, um, in the back of my classroom. Every day this semester, I have asked my students to make their mark as they come in. Are they surviving, striving, or thriving? And those are my stories too. So, lesson one. God's grace is not absent when you feel like you are merely surviving. For the last few weeks, I've been thinking about how to tell this first story. I don't tell it that often, probably because it's not a very good story. It lacks a narrative arc. It doesn't have a solid beginning, middle, or end. It's actually probably a very poor sermon illustration, especially for a rookie. But here goes. I was in my third year of my doctoral program. It might have been my fourth at Arizona State. I don't actually remember. But I know I was taking advanced psychological statistics in a class in multiple regression with Leona Aiken. And I just couldn't do it. It's the best I can explain it. I just couldn't force it. I just couldn't concentrate. I just couldn't fill in the blank. I didn't have any motivation. I remember standing out in the hall with her and she asked me, have you ever gotten any help? And it's the best starting marker I have. Admittedly, it's very foggy, but it's the best one I have of what would become a six-year battle with severe and debilitating depression. If you know anything about mental health or depression, you'll likely understand when I say it had no official start, there was no traumatic event, there was no causal or precipitating moment, it was just there, and it lasted for years. Uh, over the course of that time, I finished my coursework at ASU, and I started my new job in San Antonio, ABD, which means all but dissertation. So there I was, alone, in a new city and state, in my first full-time teaching position, and I was trying to finish my dissertation while battling depression. My advisor was admittedly concerned about my ability to finish my dissertation more than about my mental health. She was thousands of miles away. She was just trying to help me get finished. I did. It took about a year. After my first year at UTSA, I flew back to Arizona, and I defended my dissertation, completed the revisions, and flew back to Texas as Dr. Langan. But to be honest, only my name changed, nothing else. Because that's how depression can work. It doesn't have a start date, and it doesn't respect end dates. It just persists. For those years in Texas and the years in Pennsylvania that came after, I had a very kind and competent psychologist and psychiatrist. They tried really hard. We did everything. We tried combinations of meds. I had a lot of appointments. But what I really remember is crying. I cried a lot. I remember being asked what gave me joy, and I remember sitting in her office weeping because I didn't have an answer. It's one of the very few things I can remember clearly. I remember the suggestion that maybe residential facility might be helpful, but I always objected. I wanted to go home to my cats, and I'm thankful that they always thought I was capable of that. You see, I was functional enough to do my job, but really little else. 
Depression to me feels like going for a ride in a car in the back seat with the windows rolled up and I get car sick. You're just along for the ride and the world goes by your windows while you sit there. It's really hard to tell people in the front seat what it's like in the back seat. I know it's not a very vivid picture, it really is the best one I have. I felt miserable and stuck and alone. I remember telling a friend recently that I was surprised. I couldn't even remember my therapist from those days. It's come to me since. Her name was Marilyn. So how is that a story of grace? Remember, I said it wasn't a good story. It's not a story of grace understood in the moment. Like Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, I think there are some things we only know partially for now. But when I'm asked to think about God's grace and what it means to have him, his very presence, I think about depression, and I think about Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord to help me, and he turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on solid ground. He steadied me as I walked along. He gave me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see what he has done and be amazed, and they will put their trust in the Lord. That's how I understand now what God was doing in those years. God was not absent in my depression. The Holy Spirit had not left. In fact, he was my advocate. In the Greek, the word is paraklete or parakletos. Para, beside, kleon, to call, to call beside, to walk alongside. Every day, that's what he did. He lifted me out of the mire, and he put me on solid rock. It wasn't one dramatic act. It was many acts for many years. When Israel was led out of the wilderness and out of Egypt, every day God took care of them, pillars of cloud and fire, manna in the morning. Yeah, there was that one day he parted the sea, but there was a lot of very ordinary days where he was just there. And for me, there is no dramatic or symbolic crossing of the Jordan at the end of the story. But I see those ordinary days as acts of his grace in my life. This most remarkable act of grace, just being there, always being there, pulling up, holding up, and helping me to survive. So if you feel like you are merely surviving, we need to remember that God's grace is not absent even then. Lesson two, God's grace is still responsible for growth when I'm striving. A second lesson I learned about grace, I learned less in the valley and more in the journey. Dallas Willard defines spiritual formation as the process of shaping our spirit and giving it definite character. It means the formation of our spirit in conformity with the spirit of Christ. Of course, it involves the Holy Spirit in action, but the focus of spiritual formation is the formation of our spirits. I am an active participant. As Willard puts it, there's absolutely nothing in what Jesus himself or his early followers taught that suggested that you can decide just to enjoy forgiveness at Jesus' expense and have nothing more to do with him. Instead, spiritual formation calls us to an active faith. It's learning how to live in the kingdom of God and be transformed into Christ-likeness. It's actively seeking after him to transform us into something we could never achieve on our own. 
We have been saved by grace, but we have also been called to seek his face. Once again, Dallas Willard, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, doesn't just have to do with the forgiveness of sin alone. We have to have a gospel that leads us to a new life in Christ, and then spirituality can be present as a natural development of such a new life. What I love about Willard's approach is that he advocates holistic spiritual formation of mind and body, which fits very well with my story. In 2008, it was my fourth year at Wheaton College as a faculty member. It was also the year I became friends with Peter Walters. I actually think we were friends before that, but everything changed in 2008. Peter is the college's guru when it comes to wellness. He literally wrote the book that all of our students use in the required wellness class. Peter and I were Honey Rock friends. It's actually the first way I remember him, this hulk of a man sitting next to me on the van all the way up to Honey Rock one year. But in 2008, I wanted to make some life changes related to health and fitness, weight and wellness. And by God's grace, the Spirit said, ask Peter for help. When I did, he came back with an offer, really a, a counter-proposal, if you will. And he said he would help me, but here were the conditions. We were going to do it his way, no questions asked. We would do it as a group, Peter, his high school daughter, Sydney, myself, and a couple of other people. We were going to think together about holistic wellness, exercise, body composition, body image, nutrition, the spirit. And we would do lifting and cardio and have once a week family meal and discussion time. Was I in or was I out? That was Labor Day 2008. Now, I said I wasn't going to focus on a specific moment, but that one I actually remember the date for. Because for the next six to seven months, I affectionately called Peter the oppressor. <laughs> we worked out hard, and it hurt a lot. We ate weeds, and I complained like an Israelite. We worked a transformation from the inside out and from the outside in. Looking back, I can tell you it was one of the most profound experiences of my life. Here is this person whom I trusted, who had every form of credibility and no exterior motives. He wasn't selling anything, and he had nothing to gain, but my progress was his joy. I don't know if you've ever had a friend who was so invested in your growth, in your wellness, who understands how it feels, how we feel about our bodies, how we feel about our bodies, and who understands that how we feel about our bodies and how we treat them are a spiritual disciplines. They are ways that we encounter the Almighty. No, I don't actually think God cares how long you can hold a plank position for, and he doesn't care how many miles that I have biked. But I do think God could use those ordinary moments, working out alone or with Peter, to speak to me, and he has used them to shape my character. Throughout those workouts and the many miles I have cycled since, I've learned patience and perseverance. You just keep pedaling. I've learned humility. You have to when you lift next to somebody who looks like Peter. 
It's taught me to trust the process of formation, of body and of spirit, even if it doesn't feel good or worth it today. It's taught me that I need to be still and listen, even if it means I have my ear pods in and I'm on my bike. It's forced me to accept God-given limitations and understand his strengths. And as my friend and theologian Beth Jones would say, God gave us a body, Jesus had a body, bodies aren't bad. But secular humanism says, I can do it. I can remake my body. I have the ability to make myself what I want me to be. I can make good choices. But time with Peter and talking with Beth about the theology of the body reminds me that it isn't my efforts. I worked hard, and it was effortful, but I could not do it on my own. I needed help with goals. I needed the methods of how to get there, and I needed a reframed mindset. In a season where I could put in the time and the effort, God directed the growth. His goal was the transformation of character, my spirit, his method, the way he shown grace to me was through my friend Peter. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted the seed in your hearts, Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. That's another lesson in grace to me. My growth in that season is God's doing, even when I was an active player and Peter was the oppressor. God used this friend who could speak truth to me that I could hear to encourage me to be a new creation, to push me when I needed it, and to force growth through a lot of micro tears in my muscles. Those are very ordinary moments, working out, biking, but they're vivid illustrations to me that God's sanctifying grace has helped me step by step and mile by mile work at becoming what I could never have achieved on my own efforts. I need to remember that God's grace is responsible for the growth even when I'm striving. And finally, lesson three. God's grace should not be overlooked or discounted when I'm thriving. I was talking with Oanne Steer last week about what I was going to share with you this morning, and Oanne said something that stuck with me. She said, Emily, sometimes God gives you manna, and sometimes he gives you a hot fudge sundae. I, wanna, I don't want to forget to thank him for his opulent gifts, for the times when he didn't just supply my needs, but where he went over the top. I need to remember that God doesn't operate on the sufficiency principle. I believe God is interested in my pleasure as well. He treats me like a generous father who sometimes gives his beloved child a lavish gift, and that's an act of grace too. Uh, I'm a cat person. I would feel like I let the home team down if I didn't give a shout out to Gunther and Puffy, who I live with. Okay. But I'm also a big cat person. I've gone to zoos my whole life to wonder at God's creation and at his creatures. But Richard Parker, he's my favorite. Uh, it's not his actual name. His actual name is Pavel, but if you've ever read or seen The Life of Pi, you'll understand the reference. This stunning Ammer tiger, he's beautiful with his striped coat. I spent a lot of time with Richard Parker when he lived here at the Lincoln Park Zoo, enjoying him. Big cats really speak to me about the awesomeness of God's created world. 
I really can't explain it, but big cats, they're my people. Seeing Richard Parker at Lincoln Park was like going to see a friend or like going to see a therapist. When the zoo announced its plans to expand the lion pride and move all the other big cats, it was devastating. I went down for the members only time to say goodbye and I knew I was gonna say goodbye to my friend. I kept asking where he went, but zoos typically don't tell you until the animal is acclimated in their new home. So it was about six months later before they said that he was at the National Zoo in DC, which means road trip. I took my 13-year-old nephew, David, to Washington for five days. Mostly I let him direct the schedule. We divided it into blocks and filled it in with what we wanted to do. But one block on the last day I reserved to go to the National Zoo and to see Richard Parker. So we were sitting at breakfast that morning and I decided to plot out our public transportation route. And in horror, I noticed that that evening was the zoo's biggest fundraiser. And so parts of the zoo were closing early in preparation, including the big cat habitat. So we raced to the zoo and David and I ran through the zoo, dodging people to get to the big cats all the while over the loudspeakers, they're announcing, this part of the zoo is closing in 15 minutes. We got all the way out to where the cats were, um, and there was a lion out, but no tiger. And there was an empty space, and there was no tiger. Okay, I fully admit that the 13-year-old was just fine. I melted down. Um, I had come all the way to DC to see Richard Parker, and he wasn't even out. I was having the bad day that every little kid at the zoo has ever had. I called my friend Jan and I told her what had happened. She said, ask somebody at the information booth, ask somebody. Now, for the record, I had, I had asked several people and I had been told, brew at the zoo, you can come back tomorrow. She said, ask somebody to take you to see him. And I'm crying, it doesn't work that way. And she said, you gotta ask. I'm gonna, she says, I'm gonna pray that you meet an animal loving soul help you. It doesn't work that way. Okay. End scene. So the next morning, very early, I got David to the airport for his flight. And after I dropped him off, I went to the Jefferson Memorial for sunrise. And I sat there and I realized that I would be more upset to leave DC if I hadn't seen Richard Parker. So I decided to go back to the zoo to see if he was out today. This time when I got to the zoo, it was like 8 a.m. and it felt like the rapture. It was just me and the animals. Um, there was no people. The grounds were open, but none of the buildings were yet. Um, and when I got all the way back to where the cats were, there was nobody out. So I sat there for a minute, and then this young gal appeared down in the enclosure, and I yelled down to her and asked if Pavel, that's his real name, was going to come out. And she said she was just an intern. She didn't know, but that there were some keepers inside. Well, could you send them out then, please? Um, a little while later, this woman comes out with her official um, uniform on, and she said, are you the one that's asking after Pavel? I said, yes, I'm here from Chicago, I wanna see him. So we exchanged a few words, she and I, and then she said if I had a moment, she would come up and talk with me. Now, what else did I have to do? So I camped out for a while, it was actually about 45 minutes before she came up. And then when she came up, we walked over by where his enclosure was. I felt like the parents of my college students meeting their professors or, or talking with their RAs. She showed me his enclosure. She pointed to all the places where he hangs out. She told me about the tree he's afraid of. Um, she told me about his moat. Tigers actually like to swim, and he didn't have any water in Chicago. 
Um, when they moved him in January, he actually jumped right in the water. Uh, she told me what all of his normal days are like. And then she said, wait for it, well, do you want to go down and see him? I was speechless. Uh, wait, what? Come on, I'll take you downstairs to see him. So we went through these gates, it was like Fort Knox, and we walked through all these gates, um, and when we got to the last one, she said two things, there's a yellow line, stand behind it, and if you take any pictures, don't tag the zoo. Okay, then she opened the door, and there were the lions, like right there. Um, turns out this was Rebecca, she's the head of the lions at the National Zoo, and these are her guys. And so she talked all about the lions and the cubs that had been born there and the treatments that she gave to them. She said, but you came to see the tiger. So we walked around the maze, and as we got to the end of the hallway, I warned her that I was going to cry, and I did. And as we turned the corner, there he was. There was Richard Parker, closest I've ever been. And he is huge. He is a very, very big tiger. The Amur tiger is the largest of the tigers, and he was laying up on this perch and he just sat there as we talked. Um, he was there with the Sumatran tigers in a different area, so he had actually two suites, and so they rotate him inside and outside and between the two suites. So she walked me all around his suites, showed me where, what they feed him, talked about training him, walked all the way through back the suite, even let me walk into the suite with her since he was up front. Um, she talked about how independent he was and how he was thriving. She showed me the enrichments they use with him. And then we went back and stood in front of him for a while. And as we talked, she stopped and said, look, he's listening to you. See, he's wagging his tail. That's how you know when a tiger is listening. The whole experience was thrilling. She was in no rush. It took about a half an hour, 45 minutes. When we came back up. I called Jan. And I said, you are not going to believe what happened. She said, see, I prayed for the right person. Clearly, Jan knows something that I don't. Sometimes it can and does work that way. Or, as Oan would say, sometimes God gives you the hot fudge sundae. Or in my case, a tiger who wags their tails. God's grace isn't just sufficient, it is living in the overflow. I've been reading this year, like many of you, for the 90-day challenge, but I've been reading out of the Africa Study Bible. And one of the commentaries that has really struck me is out of John 5, verses 6 and 7 where Jesus heals the lame man, the passage reads, When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, Would you like to get well? I can't, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me in the pool. And when the water bubbles up, someone always gets in ahead of me. The commentary made note of the fact that the man didn't actually listen and answer Jesus' question. It says, in our prayers, we often bring solutions to Jesus and expect him to solve our problems in specific ways that we desire or the means we can see. Consequently, we may miss the blessing God intended for us when the answer comes a different way. God's plan will always outperform mine. And when that plan comes together, that too is an act of grace. I need to remember in those moments not to overlook it or to discount his grace when I am thriving. So where are you today? Are you surviving? Are you striving? Or are you thriving?
Maybe it doesn't matter. Perhaps we need to focus on who God is and what he's doing in us and through us by grace. I want to end with the words of pastor and writer Paul Tripp. So grace is a story and grace is a gift. It is God's character and your only hope. Grace is a transforming tool and a state of relationship. Grace is a beautiful theology and a wonderful invitation. Grace is a lifelong experience and a life-changing call. Grace will turn your life upside down while giving you the rest you have never known. Grace will require that you face your unworthiness without ever making you feel unloved. Will you pray with me as we close? God, I echo the words written in 2 Peter. Give us more and more grace and peace. We want to grow in the knowledge of you and in Jesus our Lord. By your divine power, you gave us everything we need to live a godly life. We receive all of this by coming to know you, the one who calls us to himself by means of his glorious excellence. Amen.